Hello, and welcome to the Inside is Capital podcast. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor of AdvisorAnalyst.com. My special guest is John Ruffalo, Managing Partner of Maverick's Private Equity, which he founded earlier this year. He's also the founder of the Canadian Council of Canadian Innovators, the former founder and CEO of Omer's Ventures, and previously was a managing partner at both Arthur Anderson and Deloitte and Touche. John has earned the reputation as Canada's leading venture capitalist and sits on the boards of numerous organizations and companies and is well known for having been one of the earliest investors in Shopify. This is the Insight is Capital podcast. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. John Ruffalo, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. I'm very excited to talk to you today. Great. Thank you, uh, Pierre. It's a pleasure. So, John, to to uh, kick things off, uh, please, um, maybe we should start with the story of the arc of your career, where you started in the financial world, how you got into venture capital and private equity eventually. Uh, the nearly catastrophic near-death year that you've had and uh, what you're doing at Maverick's private equity these days. Not necessarily in that order. Okay. <laughs> yeah, there's, that's a... It's a lot to unpack. Yeah, exactly. Well, let, let me give you kind of the, the, the quick highlight reel. So as you had indicated, I, I am a, a trained CPA, uh, a tax advisor, uh, mainly in acquisitions, uh, IPOs, et cetera. So very transactional uh, uh, career. Uh, early on in 1992, after a few years of joining uh, what was then Arthur Anderson, now uh, uh, Deloitte, um, I really had a desire to not just be a tax advisor, but to be understanding the decisions that people made in business. And because I was very young, I was not able to likely uh, get access to the C-suite of most uh, industries that were around the time, except for one. And it was the technology industry because they were kids just like me. And right. I had a fighting chance. So I started Arthur Anderson's technology practice back in 1992 when uh, there was no technology practice and where the partners were like, you want to go after that? You know what? You go ahead and you knock your socks off with the good luck to you. And boy, yeah. was it ever a struggle until 1995 and the consumer internet was born through the launch of uh, Netscape's uh, Mosaic browser and then you know the rest was history. I did that for the next 15 years thereafter in advising uh, startups to the largest companies in the world and loved every minute of it. However, I really did want to help one particular problem, and that was how do we solve the financing equation for a startups in particular, and they were struggling uh, certainly past the post.com period, but in Canada, the low point occurred in 2005 and there was no more capital for the next number of years. And there was none uh, coming uh, uh, you know, soon thereafterwards. So uh, uh, in 2010, I knew uh, Omers and they also were concerned about the same problem, except they had the capital, I didn't. And they uh, offered me to come and help them first as an advisor, but then ultimately as the builder of what became Ulmer's Ventures. Right. And really the rest of my career, and this is what led me to Mavericks, I had a three-part plan that I thought was going to take me 10 years to execute. And I will overly simplify the plan. How do you help companies get from zero to 10 million in revenue? How do you get companies from 10 million to the hundred million? 
And then finally, how do you get them from the hundred million to the billion dollar plus? Right. And those first two pieces, um, I, you know, I helped solve in building Omer's ventures. And then this third piece is what we're solving for at Mavericks. Amazing. You, you've really, uh, you've really been through, uh, the ups and downs of, of technology, uh, going back to, to the early nineties and then, and then experiencing the boom in the, at the end of the decade. And then, and then the, uh, the, the, uh, the meltdown at the beginning of the, uh, of the two thousands of the aughts and then, and then all the way back up again, uh, through, through a, I guess what was a pretty dark period, as you mentioned, which was, was the, uh, the, the post post tech meltdown period where, where financing dried up, but, uh, and then you've, you've also, I mean, you know, to add to that, you've also been through the, uh, the great, you know, the GFC in, in 2008, which compounded things. Um, but it also, I mean, like, like the current crisis that particular crisis also gave rise to technology as well in, in certain ways. I, I just, uh, recall, you know, among other things, at least one of the big stories that I, that I had watched at the time was, was the story of how all of the, uh, undersea fiber optic pipelines were being acquired by, by the uh, rapidly growing Indian companies, um, which gave rise to outsourcing in India. But, uh, so, so coming out of that, I guess, during that decade, during the decade of the two thousands being a pretty tough period, um, you know, only the, uh, only the best survived, right. Only the, only the companies that actually had something useful to offer survived. Um, and the rest sort of maybe blew themselves up because they, they couldn't catch up to their financing, their, their past financing. So. Um, so John, your, that's, that, thank you. Um, your, your personal story this year, your, your brush with death is as inspiring as it, as it also serves as a remarkable case of resilience and determination. So if it's all right with you, um, please tell us about what happened to you last year when you were struck by a, a jackknifing truck while cycling and, and how that catastrophic near death experience has and hasn't changed your life. Sure. I mean, um, you know, as I, as I had indicated earlier, um, so I had left, uh, Omer's to build Mavericks in 2019. Right. And I had spent that, uh, all of 2019 and in half of 2020 getting the firm geared up. Uh, to raise its capital and you know, we got hit with COVID right in the middle of that right. for a new fund, there was just no way that you were going to raise uh, capital. And so by all indications, we were going to uh, restart the process for a third time in the fall of 2020. And we were gearing up for that. We had strong levels of interest. Uh, by a number of parties. And as we were gearing up for that, uh, what I was doing, uh, again, because it's COVID is taking advantage of the light traffic flows in the city. Uh, and it made riding in the city that much easier and that much safer. And, but also during COVID, you really couldn't or shouldn't be riding with lots of folks. It was a lots of solo riders. And, uh, on, uh, in September of last year, like I did every other week before that in the midweek, I would take a nice, uh, bike ride in the week, uh, and do an 80, K typical ride. Uh, whereas you know, normally I would, I would wait for that ride for the weekend. So I had an opportunity to do that both weekday and weekend. And on this particular gorgeous day, it felt absolutely great. And I was five kilometers away from my midpoint destination. Uh, when I heard the sounds of a large truck, 
and it be, and it was clear to me that it was probably a tractor trailer, just given the size of the truck that I heard, but more importantly, the slamming of the air brakes. And I had no idea what this truck was doing. Uh, mm -hmm. He came up from behind me and, uh, as I'm getting quite upset that a truck is right on my back tire, I felt the, the truck hit me hard, uh, at 80 kilometers an hour on my back. And oh. uh, that was the last thing that I felt. And, uh, a few minutes later, I do remember clearly, uh, waking up and I'm on the ground, uh, not knowing how bad I was, um, and trying to stand up, uh, and moving my arms, not realizing that not only is my spine shattered, it literally evaporated one of my vertebrae, but the impact of the fall being, uh, thrown through the air at that speed, uh, shattered the rest of my body, uh, particularly my pelvis and the entire right side of my body. Uh, and, uh, what I didn't realize as well too, was, uh, I lost uh, about 50% of my blood through internal bleeding. So model, no, at the time, but I was actually in the middle of dying. And, uh, you, 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 you kind of know what dying feels like, and I knew exactly what dying felt like. And all I remember is somebody shouting at me, don't move. You're in really bad shape. And from there I was rushed, uh, to hospital, uh, uh, with it in the concern was that if I didn't get to hospital within one hour. Uh, serious, more serious damage would arise. Uh, thank God I did not hit, I did hit my head, but I didn't yeah. damage anything. So I was very cognizant. I was cognizant for the entire ambulance ride down <laughs> separate, uh, story. And the only thing I remember, uh, is getting to the hospital, seeing the doctor throw on oxygen, uh, on me and then turning on the gas to knock me out. Right. And, uh, I didn't have surgery until 36 hours after that accident. Um, so that's kind of my story right to the hospital. Wow. Whatever. And, and, you know, so now it's obvious it's been a year. And since that, since the, uh, the accident, um, how's the recovery, uh, how's the recovery going? Well, it's a very, very long, um, and windy road, uh, and nothing's easy. Uh, once they discovered that I was not going to die and they didn't know for sure until after the 48 hours. And, uh, I went into surgery for approximately 15 hours, uh, after I had awoke and was very cognizant and I, and they removed the intubation to, uh, um, did they tell me that I'll, I would never walk again. The damage was just too catastrophic and without going in through the details. I did yeah. ask one of my good doctor friends one day over a little bit of a, a, a bottle of wine. I said, you know what? I didn't listen to a damn thing that they told me when I was at hospital because I didn't care. Uh, would you mind going through my medical report? And <laughs> the doctor who's a very, very well-known doctor at, uh, sick kids kept on pausing and said, I, I don't understand. You're supposed to be dead. We're told in medical school, you shall die if this thing here happens. And he kept on adding up the stuff. And I don't know if I was feeling worse or better uh, through that conversation. Um, but, but the, the doctors did tell me that there was no possibility of walking 
and I was uh, diagnosed as what's called a, a complete uh, paralysis. And then six days after letting me know my cycling leg, my powerful part of my cycling started twitching again. And wow. I didn't know that it's not supposed to twitch. So I didn't say anything until a nurse was leaning on me on my leg. And I just said, ow. And yeah. he was in shock. He says, why are you saying ow? And I said, you're leaning on my leg. And she goes, you can yeah. feel that? I go, yeah, just how long have you been feeling that? And I said, oh, that was four or five days. He's like, oh my God, you could feel? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so it's gone from that point. Now it's been a year and uh, I'm in uh, physical rehab uh, six days a week. Right. On average, about three-ish, four-ish hours per day. And then I do my own personal physio. So say it's about, I do about 30 hours a week, every single week. Uh, so quite intensive. Um, yeah. and, and that's in addition to running my, my, my firm. So my, my weeks are just a little bit busy, but where I am today is I'm far surpassing where I thought I would be. Um, you know, I am, uh, back outside cycling again, uh, but this time in a recumbent bike, not in my normal bike. Wow. And that's uh, remarkable. Yeah. Now I'm not at my levels, uh, of, yeah. of, of, of your, but, uh, it's increasing at a, uh, really rapid pace. And, um, I do a lot of practicing walking and standing and, uh, everything that I was told that I would never, ever do, I'm certainly doing. I am nowhere near where I need to be, uh, but I have far surpassed where I was told I would be. Well, it certainly is a testament to your resilience and your, uh, your fighting spirit that you're, you're known for. <laughs> yes, right. That's right. Right. So, yeah, you know, it's, it's also stubbornness, you know, what? Yeah. I told you I didn't bother listening to the doctors because yeah. <laughs> like it doesn't do me any good to listen. Well, I frankly, you know, I, I shared the story, I think publicly, I, I, I didn't mean to see it sound ungrateful, but when the doctor did tell me that I would never walk in, uh, it was in front of me and my wife, the doctor yep. leaves, my wife and I cried, I think for about 20 or 30 seconds. And my mm -hmm. immediate response was, you know, fuck you. Don't you ever tempt me I'm never going to walk again. I'm going to show you. Yeah. Now, I did that as a moment of defiance. Yeah. Uh, because nobody does tell me I'm going to do. But in many respects, uh, you know, you almost want to prove that, yeah, you know what, you're right. Uh, yeah. in walking in and my, my surgeons continually are shocked at the rapid progress that I'm making. I love it. Never give up. I just, I just love that, right. that attitude. And, you know, it's so great that, that you've, uh, you've recovered and, and that you're back in the saddle and drafting behind Johnny. Does it work there, buddy? I heard some of the stories, uh, I mean, from it, you know, firsthand from you, because you've, you've done a number of interviews throughout the year and, and, uh, in particular, you know, that you were lying in, in the hospital bed, making phone calls, your spreadsheets in front of you, getting in touch with your, getting in touch with your partners and your, you know, <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, that entrepreneurial spirit is, uh, is hard to quell. So. Yeah. But you know. Uh, on, on that though, you know, that is really where, uh, you know, I, I, I think is really the story to share because frankly, I got that from a lot of the entrepreneurs who I invested in and it was fun. You know, I would always tell them it's all about passion because passion is going to get you to the other side of your, of, of, of your goal. And 
And if anything ever gets into your way, you will just never stop, um, you know, fighting for what your ultimate goal is. And so what happened, um, uh, with the accident, I was not going to allow, um, you know, me being run over by a truck to get in, in the way of that third part of that goal that I had, right? And I just think that it was a little bit of me eating my own, you know, dog food or whatever, you know, you, you want to say in terms of <laughs> what I would say when I was looking for an entrepreneur. Now, I, I unfortunately experienced it the very, very hard way in a way that I didn't expect anybody to go through it. But, you know, we, we talk about all of the obstacles in our lives for whatever we want to accomplish. And you know what? They're all small. They really are. But when you're talking about your health and when somebody's a, you know, gets hit with cancer, you know, what happened to me or what have you, those are the real obstacles. Not because a VC won't answer your call and you're complaining yeah. that business can't operate. Well, you know what? You're just a whine, right? That's not an obstacle. Go out and you go fix it and you go find it. And yeah. so now I really know what some of the folks really went through. And my God, uh, it's tough and every day continues to be tough. But uh, if I didn't have that ultimate passion of that third problem I'm going to solve, I'm not so sure I'd go through all this. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you, you know, you're, when you woke up and you're, you know, you were completely lucid and, and completely aware of everything and, and, you know, all of your faculties intact, um, you must have been, your, 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 your mind must have been going just a million miles an hour. Just, you must, you know, you got your, you got your, your family, you got your family, you gotta, you gotta think about, you got your, your business. I, I was, I was particularly, uh, touched by by the story that your friends, your many friends, circled the wagons for you and yeah. really came came to your side when you needed them. Yeah, that was just, that was a remarkable. It is that was a remarkable story. Frankly, that's the real that's the real story because that's what yeah. really really accelerated my my recovery. So, a a couple of comments. There is a physiological desire to survive that we all talk about. And I just, yeah, I, I experienced it. Uh, yeah. When I woke up, uh, I didn't think about, I, I, I don't remember. I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember with my left arm, my left forearm, crying as hard as I can to drag myself up and nothing moved, nothing. Yeah. And, but that was my body, uh, just telling me to get up, which is pretty fascinating, isn't it? For your body to do that. And I don't think brain was turned on. And then as I realized, it was only then I realized I had no movement and no feeling below my waist. And yeah. then I was like, oh, shit. I think I'm paralyzed. I knew it. I knew it right then. I just didn't know if it was temporary or, or permanent. Um, but then the second thing I thought about uh, was my wife and my kids. And so when the a person saw me moving, they actually already had my phone from my back. I was in my, my cycling kit and they just said, is there uh, an ambulance is coming? Is there anybody we want to contact? And I said, yes, my wife. Mm -hmm. And I had to actually give the password to the phone. Yeah. I yeah. To give the phone number. All I remember doing is yelling to my wife. Uh, I'm hurt. I'm hurt real bad. Wow. Come and get me. And what, what, I was most concerned about was her seeing me and knowing I'm really bad. I have crashed several times and I always bounce back. 
And the funny thing was, she knew immediately that I was fine. Not because she knew what actually really happened to me, but she couldn't understand it, how I could be speaking to her like that, yeah. unless I was that badly hurt. So in many respects, by me yelling out there, she realized, <laughs> oh, okay, he's hurt, but he can't be that hurt. Little did she know, she only found out when she got to the hospital and they told her, actually, they didn't tell her, they told my friends who were there, who told my wife that he might pass away the first 48 hours and that he won't, that, that no doctor will perform surgery on me. Um, and, and so anyways, it is interesting that I think the comfort for most people is what you would hope would happen. You feel, you think first about, you know, yourself, your body. And next, your loved ones. And at no yep. split second did I think about my business because at that point, you know, it doesn't matter. But uh, amazing that this, the person who came to your help at the roadside actually thought of doing that. That's, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking that, wow, like, you know, yep. that was a, what a remarkable thought to have at that moment when, when, you know, you're lying there and, 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 and to think of, of, of you and is there anyone you want to call? And uh, I just like, I'm blown away by that too. I, I don't know who it was. I just yeah. know it was a female and yeah. I was told it was a witness to the accident. Oof, yeah. They blocked the traffic in all directions. So, so that uh, I would be protected. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you, John, for, uh, for sharing that. That's, uh, you know, I'm sure. You've, you've probably talked about this endlessly throughout the year with many different people and, and, but I really appreciate you, uh, sharing that with, with, no us, with me. So I'd like to frame the next part of our conversation by saying that, you know, that Canada has a very long, rich history of innovation and invention. Uh, unfortunately, much of which has been in the end sold to foreign interests and you know, we have, we have a long history of witnessing the poaching of our intellectual property because our capital markets aren't yet deep enough mm -hmm. to prevent that from happening. And, you know, when, when you're the entrepreneur on, on the receiving end of that, it's hard to say no when that might be your only avenue for, for growth. Yeah. For, you know, for, for moving along. Um, I just remember, you know, seeing, seeing a long list of Canadian inventions, wireless radio, mobile telephony, charged couple devices, you know, the pacemaker, Java, uh, programming language, just to name a handful. And then the list is much, much longer than that. So I don't want to, I don't want to take up the conversation rhyming off this long list of Canadian inventions, but it just blows my mind also that, yep. that, that Canada has this, this history of of, of being inventive and innovative and creative and technologically far, you know, far ahead of many other countries. Um, what are your thoughts on that, on the, the brain drain? Yeah. So it's a, 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 there's, there's a, a lot of pieces to that, but let me just hit a, hit a few of them. There is no lack of innovation in this country, period, end of story. And anybody who suggests that there is neither knows or, or neither possesses any innovative bone in their own body, period. All you got to do is look at all of the amazing Canadians who are in the United States and elsewhere doing some of the most innovative stuff in the world. And yet, uh, they're able to do that. So, so, so cut that out. In fact, we're actually quite good from a research perspective. The issue starts to pop around when you're starting to commercialize uh, the innovations. Now, let me give you a couple of issues because there's a myriad of com complex issues to unfold. Number one, from a policy perspective, most of our governmental folks are absolutely clueless in how innovation uh, is developed into the commercialization process. And in fact, 
if you look to see where most government policy is focused around is around jobs. It's always the rhetoric around jobs. And that was the post-World War II industrial policy that most politicians have no clue to just repeat that same silly rhetoric without actually really understanding what do you really mean? Do you actually mean wealth creation? And and in the IP post-industrial world, it's IP that is the value, not the property, plant, and equipment. The whole ideas around the multiplier, the economic multiplier effect, when you have property, plant, equipment, and what that means, the number of jobs that you get in your local supply chains, but yet they don't understand that in the IP-based world, the supply chain is segregated from the ownership of the intellectual property. And in many cases, the supply chains are offshore. And we're seeing this today in China, right? There's nothing wrong with a lot of technology companies in Canada, but they can't produce their product because the technology or the chipsets are over in China, as an example. That is a supply chain issue. Now, you might argue, no, John, it's also an innovation one because why don't we have our own chipsets? It's a very good discussion point, right? Now, so public policy, the moment they actually realize, stop focusing in on jobs and focusing on more on wealth, i.e. ownership of IP, ownership of data, et cetera, you start to see where the path is going. What happens when you focus in on jobs? You end up with a lot of bridge plants in Canada, leveraging these amazing intellectual uh, capacity and say, thank you so much. And here's a hundred thousand dollars per person. You're so cute. <laughs> Take the billions back. But you're yeah. so cute and adorable. Yeah. We love you Canadian. And our moronic government officials can't see that if they hit the right in the head. So yeah. this is why we've been smacking that entire flip. Now, once you get that right, then you look at the funding eco- or the ecosystem of building a company and only one of the components, it's a big one, but one of them is the, the capital necessary, particularly where you're building something that is in a hyper-competitive environment and capital matters, right? Not in every business, but right. that sort of business. For the entrepreneur, If there's not enough capital in this country, then the entrepreneur's obligation is to find it. No excuses, but find it anywhere in the world. And that might mean that that entrepreneur leaves the country. Or that might mean that all the capital comes from outside of Canada and you have what's called this kind of gradual bleeding out of the, the main management teams into the foreign jurisdiction, which ultimately doesn't lead to the right path either. So, so for those entrepreneurs who have no choice because they don't have any capital and choose to stay here, may be forced to sell it. And when somebody's offering you a lot of money, at least compared to where you are now, it's very, very tough to turn it down. And part of the reason why I formed Omer's Ventures originally and now Mavericks is keep the business here. Absolutely. I will provide the same amount of capital that you would get in the United States or elsewhere. So now what's your excuse, right? Well, there you you solve the the financing problem. You still have the talent problem and the customer uh, acquisition problem, but let's deal with those problems now, right? But I was just trying to take away the financing problems and take away the, uh, the choice for those entrepreneurs who want to keep on going, but they just can't. And that is what I really hope to achieve. I, I absolutely love this, this uh, mission that you're on. I think, I think that, you know, keeping Canadian technology Canadian is so vital. That, you know, when, when you see, for example, you know, companies like Google, uh, you know, 
portending to come and set up new headquarters in Canada. It's great economically speaking, you know, it brings lots of, it brings, you know, Google and, and lots of Google money to Canada and it creates lots of jobs. But then once those jobs are filled by Canadians, whatever the Canadians that are in those jobs do gets just like with the branch plant economy, with the automakers, whatever the Canadian, uh, you know, geniuses do at Google just ends up flowing back to Google as work product. I'm sorry, but can I correct what you just said? It is not good economically. You made an assumption there. Let me just poke You're it. right. Uh, thank you for correcting. Yeah. That's yeah. Fine. Because yeah. it could be, but I actually, my thesis is it's actually but, drains us economically. But this is, this is the argument that you're making, which is that yes. this is all on, on jobs. So, so maybe it's all on jobs. It's yeah. good for, but you're right. Right. Yeah. It's all on jobs, but then the, the jobs actually is the back door to collecting all of the intellectual property. Yes. Right. It, it, and, yeah. and, and, and let me just add, when you say even on the job, now in this particular market, there is an assumption that these folks would otherwise not be employed. There is zero job creation by any non-Canadian company coming in here in the technology sector. Zero. I want to put that into the newspapers. It's zero. They might pay a little bit more, but it's zero because there is a shortage everywhere right. in that sector, right? So now that I poke at that, now you're going to go, wait a minute. Well, if they're not creating jobs and they're taking away the IP, what are they actually doing? Well, it's not all bad because Google's an outstanding organization, right? So yeah. you get a little bit of that Google-esque, you know, in, into Toronto, et cetera. So it's not all bad, but it's not for the economic reasons that yeah. you are seeing plastered on the newspapers. That is all total and utter nonsense. Wow, thank you for uh, thank you for clarifying that. No, I'm 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 you know that's that's exactly you know what I was hoping to to talk to you about. I think you know it's it's uh, I, I what I what one of the things I really like that you've done is you know like you're a, a you know you're a rock star in the technology world here, and you've assembled. Uh, as a board of advisors, a rock star crew of Canadian entrepreneurs to your advisory board, right? I mean, in terms of, of yeah. having a committee of, of like-minded, uh, successful people in their own right, be part of your process. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, you know, like names, uh, some of the people that you have, like Peter Gilligan from Mattamy Homes, Danny Reese from Canada Goose, Jim Balsilly from Blackberry and uh, Arlene Dickinson mm -hmm. and John Bitov. Um, what a what a remarkable you know advisory board and, and uh, board of directors you you've created at Mavericks. Um, I'm I'm I guess I'm I'm curious now because you know we've talked about the history of Canadian innovation up, up until this point in the conversation. I know you were, you know, I think, I think everybody by now knows that you were directly involved in, in the, uh, uh, the growth of Shopify, bringing it, bringing Shopify forward in terms of, of capital and, and, uh, advising, advising the company to, uh, on how it should grow and how it can grow. Um, what kind of Canadian innovation are you looking at these days? Yes. So, um, I'm glad you used the term innovation because um, I do believe Canada is very innovative and one of the industry sectors in which it's very innovative it is in the technology sector. So for the first uh, large chunk of my career, I focused in on helping companies in the technology sector grow and compete on a global perspective. But I would say starting around 2015-ish or thereabouts, 
uh, and I had a, a, a more expansive role in Omer's than just the Omer's ventures. But what I was really looking at and observing, uh, but I didn't quite know what was going on at the time, was the crossing of the chasm of the use of that technology in traditional industries. Now, let me explain the subtlety of the point, because at the time, starting around 2015, we started coining these terms called FinTech, PropTech, HealthTech, whatever tech. You know what? It shouldn't be, I don't give a shit text because everything is going to be tech. <laughs> if you want yeah. to run a business in Canada and I, I just want to see those words dropped up. They're just a financial services company, you know, now yeah. what started to happen. And this is what I think is most exciting. You started to see most of those companies that I described, whether they're prop tech, fintechs developed from a tech stack perspective first. And so it was typically a tech entrepreneur who understood how to build technology and then picked an industry that they sought to compete because they saw a flaw or frustration in that industry. Although they didn't know that industry all that very well. And I started to notice that they grew very, very rapidly from the zero to 10 when they got to the 10 and you're starting to uh, look for scale, problems started to show up because they didn't really understand the business that they were seeking to disrupt, particularly right. if it was a complex business. But starting around 2015, I started to notice the different entrepreneur. It was, using my same example, the financial services company that's been around for 20 years or 10 years clawing away, building their, their business. They already have product market fit, but they decide to leverage technology into their business to make their business bigger, faster, stronger, with greater insights. As an example, introducing AI into their business. These are not tech people, but they're tech enlightened and they know enough that they, they really have to get real tech savvy in order to compete. And what was fascinating to me is that I'm seeing this massive, uh, you know, potential development. And yet outside of the technology industry, it was almost bare. And I just saw that go, my God, when the rest of our industries get lit up from a technology perspective, there is going to be the most massive you know, uh, you know, uh, combobulation that goes on where there is just, uh, you know, people, you know, incumbents, you know, going bankrupt, uh, new upstarts flying and just nice, uh, wars going on. And that's where you want to be because that's where you make money. So I've placed my bet on that trend and so. When I say Canada needs to be an innovation nation, I very intentionally use those words, not a technology nation, an innovation nation, because it's those industries that will continue to innovate and they could innovate business models or, or what have you. But my belief system is, is that the adoption of technologies will be the greatest driver of growth for those businesses. And it just so happens that's my area of expertise. So these new, you know, businesses or sorry, these businesses that are not so new, but need that help are perfectly suited. And, and I think we are in the first inning of watching this. And again, it's going to be a lot of pain to a lot of incumbent businesses. And they will go away. And what we'll be left with is every company, everyone, mining, you name it, will be a technology company because you have. And that's right. the world where I think Canada could and should play because given our limited population size, our limited amount of capital, et cetera, this is how Canada will be able to play and compete from a global perspective. 
that's it's it's you know when you contemplate these things i mean i i i i i like your you know the the way that you focused on the word innovation because i i i think it speaks more to uh creativity right to being able to creatively take existing technologies that some of which are commoditized or open source and use them as building blocks to create the kinds of solutions to problems that you're talking about that are, you know, long held at, at many companies, not all companies are thinking that way, but there's certain, there's going to be companies that emerge from, from their industry groups, as you said, with, with new ideas and new approaches and new ways of looking at, at the business and, and new ways of solving their problems that are, that are technologically superior. Um, I'm not going to ask you to name any names <laughs> unless you want to, but I, I'm, I'm, so is it safe to say like, cause my next question was, was, you know, uh, going to be, what are some of the next big Canadian things that, you know, Canadian innovations that you see coming down the pike? Well, the innovations themselves are not necessarily Canadian. So with its AI machine learning, but, right. but I, I would say the two technological forces that will, in my view, have the greatest impact if we don't get a handle on uh, in Canada is quantum and blockchain, it, both for different reasons, but, uh, you know, on the quantum kit is actually, uh, an interesting, uh, world leader on the R and D side of it, uh, less so on the productization, but, you know, there's a company that I invested in at Omer's Ventures called Xanadu that is probably at the leading edge of photonic, uh, uh, quantum, but, but, um, uh, it's not ready for prime time yet. Just like blockchain is not really, right. uh, but, but if companies don't understand those capabilities right now, I think they're behind the eight ball and they should be thinking through. It's still a little early blockchain. I think a little bit more realistically early, but quantum perhaps a little bit further off, but not that far off. But when you look to see all of these businesses that, that go, that are all on, that will have to be all online. And you thought security was a big issue before. That's, that's going to be the issue, right? right. Um, and quantum is a very different step change in your ability to protect yourself. And if you don't control the quantum, your enemies will. And you know, already it's pretty much, a, there's a backdoor virtually to, I think, every single technology and software that there is, but it is getting more frightening that if we're mechanizing everything, so if your body, uh, you know, and maybe my body and my legs are mm -hmm. going to be powered by chipsets, and I'm hopeful of that. Well, what if somebody yeah. breaks into my chipsets and starts kicking in the ass at everybody who is around me and I get uh, a, a big yeah. nose on there? Like, yeah. Or I push the gas pedal and uh, when I shouldn't be, you know, like these are not without the real world possibilities. These are issues that we just never think about. Like, you know, autonomous vehicles, everybody talks about. If we don't have security over autonomous, uh, autonomous vehicles, we've got guns, plastic cannons that are going to kill people. Like, yeah. uh, so, so, so those are two big things that we, that I think that we really need to get a handle on in this country and invest a lot at the R and D level on the commercialization level. I would just say that if you are involved in a business, running a business on the board of a business. If you are not talking about how to uh, 
leverage technology in almost every function of your business right now, you will go out of business. I will guarantee you that. I don't know when, but you yeah. will. Because your competitor is figuring it out how to do it cheaper, better, faster than you. And COVID showed this weakness. Look at every restaurant that wasn't already online. They either had to do it really fast or they just went out of business. And how long did that take? It took 12 months. Boom, you're out of business. Like COVID was a wake-up call. It didn't change. COVID hasn't changed a damn thing. It maybe woke up some people to say, if you're not uh, uh, preparing for a redundancy using technology, you're done. And, you know, so many are done, unfortunately, but the ones that will replace them will be better, stronger, and be, and, and will be far more resilient. There's so much food for thought there. I, I um, you know, just taking a step back to what you said, you know, about, about, you know, chipsets running our bodies. I think, you know, there's some examples of life soon to imitate art. In, in certain movies, right, you know, cybernetic humans has already been dealt with, but it seems to be a direction that, that you know, the world wants to head in uh, for, for one motivation or another. When we talk about, when we, we talk about technology, so much of, of the direction of technology and innovation have been, have been led by uh, I- events in movies too. I mean... Right. When you, when you look at, at, uh, for example, a movie like Interstellar, I mean, there's so many things happening in that movie at the beginning of the story where, you know, you have these, you know, autonomous harvesters, um, that's something that's actually happening, right? Then there was the, uh, nuclear powered autonomous drone that he, he catches in order to harvest the, harvest the, uh, the chips from it and the techno and the nuclear reactor from it. You know, we, we recently did a, um, uh, we did it, we, we had a conversation with, uh, one of the portfolio managers at Horizons, Nick Picard about uranium. And one of the things that, that was interesting that he talked about was, was the use of, uh, modular reactors, small modular reactors to, yep. to, uh, provide, you know, power, uh, to, uh, remote areas or, or even in cities. That, that one day, you know, we, we could have nuclear, small nuclear reactors as, as a, a power plant. Yep. Um, and all, all these things are actually happening already around us. It's just that, that you know, you, if you don't have a watchful eye, you know, you, you, it, it, when it actually comes to fruition, uh, I mean, it must just be an amazing perch for you to be in touch with the, uh, the innovators of, uh, you know, in Canada and, and, and probably, and I'm guessing of the world as well, uh, and the U S, uh, to, to hear of all these developments that are, that are unfolding, uh, in some cases yeah. at light speed. Yeah. And you know, the only thing I'll just add to that comment is that, but sometimes we're going to watch out for the morality of technology, right? So yeah. just because you can build doesn't mean that we should, um, and, you know, when people, you know, want to create, uh, mini terminators, uh, like, but yeah, soldiers, oh, yeah. right. Who's really driving it? Oh my God. It's the military, right? Yeah. That is the biggest application, uh, that, that you want to fight a war that you don't lose any people. I get it. But does that make war just that much easier? And you start to really wonder the morality of why we're driving certain things. So, you know, when you said having the perch, it is great. And most things are done with a good purpose in mind, but for every good purpose is a double-edged sword. And so, you know, when somebody wants to create a drone to deliver your pizza, that same drone is killing somebody in Afghanistan. Exact same technology, right? So it's like, okay, hold on a bit here. Let's understand why we're doing this sort of stuff. Or is something as simple as, you know, the automation. Well, the automation does create this temporary loss of employment that if we don't have the ability to retrain folks, 
what's going to happen in society? Do we have this barbell effect of the haves and have nots? So it's very, very complicated. Uh, but at the Absolutely. end of the name, once the genie is out of the bottle, I think it is out of the bottle. And it's also our job just to make sure that while most of it is done for good, sometimes it's not done, it's done for not so good. And our job is to, you know, protect the weaker elements of society so that they're not hurt by it. That's very wise. I just, uh, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it's interesting when you, you know, when you start to pierce the veil on a lot of motivations for certain technologies, um, the, the, I, you know, I don't know if people actually care for the idea. I, I, I don't personally think the idea of, you know, pizza delivery by, by a drone is that, is that exciting. Yeah. Uh, at all. I mean, I just think well, who's dry, like, who's, who's, mo who's actually looking forward to that. And, and, um, somebody you wanting know, to get rich, maybe and expanding, uh, people's yeah. waistlines and, uh, I agree with you <laughs> and I get a lot of that stuff yeah. and I look at folks and go like, really? Yeah. You know, like I, I just, Why? I just don't care. Yeah. Uh, you might be successful, but I just don't care. So go to somebody who just wants to make money off of you. Our team wants to change the world and make money for our investors. No question, because I won't be in business if I don't do that. But you know what? There are so many things out there that have very, very similar risk reward profiles, but one can change the world and the other one, you know, yeah. might hurt the world. Well, it feels so damn good to go home at night knowing that you're at least having some small role in uh, helping change the world. Well, John, um, you know, kudos to you and, and what you've achieved in your life to date and, and what you're set or yet to achieve. Um, I love your mission. I think your mission to keep Canada Canadian is is a uh, remarkable one and uh it's it's a real outstanding mission i think in terms of 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 uh you know the future of this country and and uh so i want to thank you very much first of all for uh, for sharing all of that and i've got one last question so it's a would you rather question would you rather be the best player on the worst team or the worst player on the best team? I think it's just, that's just an easier answer because to be honest, I've been the worst player on the best team and I've loved it. And that I really haven't been the best player on the worst team. I think in my entire life <laughs> and frankly, it's just not as fun, but, uh, uh I love uh, and, and by the way, I'll answer that question in the final career phase, you know, for my life, I realized that I have retired from being the center iceman on the team. And so yeah. my job is to build that team. And I am now the coach behind the bench and I am finding this shift in the role, my most exhilarating because I see all the young, energetic folks, you know, and shaping them and helping them and giving them the advice is the most enriching thing you could possibly do. And the one thing that I'm trying to build and very consciously doing so is building a team and not a bunch of lone wolf hotshots because that just doesn't work, especially in my business. And actually, you actually run into some serious problems of doing so. So answer to your question, always the team and me personally, I just so happen to be the worst, but the only thing I'm smart enough to do, I do surround myself with some really talented and smart folks because uh, I really desperately need them to up the game. Well, keep on doing what you're doing, John. It's, uh, it's phenomenal. And, uh, we're going to be watching you. All right. <laughs> thank you so much. Um, John, thank you so much for your incredibly valuable time and, um, Godspeed to you on your full and complete recovery. And 
I hope to uh, actually meet you in person sometime yeah, it's exactly. in the near future. Look forward to that. Thank you. All right. Take care, Pierre.